Good morning. Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. Let's, uh, let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word, and may it speak boldly into our lives, and may we, with bold confidence, affirm by faith what you have said, and that we would live then accordingly, faithful lives. Father, by your grace, through the power of your spirit, trusting and looking forward to the hope that we have that is found only in you. Father, for it's your name's sake that we pray, and it's in the name of your son Jesus that we're able to speak to you. Amen. Amen. The practical application for us thus far in Hebrews, broadly said, is perseverance to the end. How do we persevere to the end? Salvation is not just a one-time event, though it's rooted and began in a one-time event. Salvation, though, is to be worked out. And only those who persevere till the end will then finally know that they are truly redeemed. You and I cannot know at this moment with infallible truth that you are redeemed. And I know that that's uncomfortable. You and I cannot know right now with absolute 100% certainty that I am redeemed. We can have a measure of assurance, but there is nowhere in the scriptures that give us this, this idea that I could know without any doubt whatsoever this moment that I am truly redeemed. Those who we will know if we are truly redeemed when the moment he says, enter into my presence for all of eternity, then we will know. Until then, until then, we persevere. And only those who persevere to the end will be redeemed. Now, as we talked about last week, God has certainly a sovereign role in that perseverance. But I'm not going to rehash that. But perseverance to the end is the call. That's the practical application for which the book of Hebrews was written. But as we think about perseverance, we have to acknowledge right from the very beginning that there is much that works against us, much that is actively working against us. The world does not want you to persevere. The flesh that's still inside you does not want you to persevere. And certainly, the devil does not want you and I to persevere. We live in grave danger. 
Now, I, I, that's a hard concept, I think, that, that we tend to completely underestimate because we live in a world, and for many of us in this room, we live in a place where it's rather safe, that we kind of avoid all danger, if at all possible. And for many of us, practically in this room, are rarely in dangerous moments, if you're in dangerous moments, you can begin to, you, to understand what it, like, what it is for us spiritually, though, to live in danger. The problem, though, because we underestimate the danger, many of us sit around oftentimes playing with fire. We let our kids play with fire from the educational setting in which we let them be or the television that we let them watch, or the friends we let them keep. Or you and I, as adults, play with fire ourselves, not studying our Bibles diligently so that we are prepared to give a defense, or not squeezing the sermon for every last drop that you can get, both in understanding and in application. Or missing church for stupid reasons. Yes, there are such. Many of us sit around and play with fire and don't realize that we're playing with fire. There is so much working against us. And if you took to heart last week, there were tough words for us to hear here in the book of Hebrews. He wasn't, the author was not such a, quote, nice guy, was he? I doubt he'd win any awards for winsomeness or being gracious enough. But here was his main talking points, and my main talking points last week. One is, you have to advance. If you're going to persevere in the faith, there has to be growth in the faith. You, don't just, you can't just maintain faith at some base level and expect to persevere to the end. There is no neutral. You're either growing in faith or shrinking in faith. Those are the two options. And those who, who grow in faith are the ones who will persevere to the end. But the ones who shrink in faith are the ones who will end up losing their salvation. We have to advance from sucking on a bottle to chewing meat. From being a soul, solely a student to being a teacher. We have to move from the elementary principles to further doctrine. We cannot be dull of hearing or lazy. In this passage, he uses the word sluggards. So if you needed help understanding what dull of hearing means, just read a couple more verses later. He talks about sluggishness. It's, he's carrying the same theme here just a few verses later. We don't want to be sluggish. You have to advance. Number two, if you don't advance in the faith, as I already said, you will lose your salvation. And as we talked about last week, there is no second chances for apostates. Now, for the sake of anyone who, is, who is not, did not listen to the sermon last week, I would encourage you to go listen to it so that the phrase, lose your salvation, fits into its appropriate context. I'm going to trust you'll be a faithful student and go do that. But if you don't advance, that was his warning. You will fall away from the faith. Now this is what he said to the Hebrews, and this is the danger for us. This is the danger you and I face each and every day. And it's like being in a canoe paddling upstream. 
don't know if you've ever been in a canoe. Has anybody been in a canoe trying to paddle upstream? Anybody? Like literally upstream? Okay. All right. Fair enough. When, when we were leaving the Boundary Waters last summer uh, from our campsite, it was an hour and a half uh, paddle back to our uh, outfitters point where they would pick us up in our canoes and take us back. And on our paddle back through the waters, the wind, we were on a lake, but the wind was blowing in our face. It was, I mean, the swells, thank, thank goodness, were not huge, but it was like the paddle was just brutal, and it was an hour and a half of that. And the thing is, it wasn't just uh, take your time, take a break. There were no breaks. There was no, because if we didn't make it back in time, the outfitter would not stay there and wait for us, all right? So then we'd have to get everything unloaded and set up camp again, and it would, would, yeah, we had to paddle. Listen, we're not promised any breaks this side of eternity either. Yes, we, there is a thing called rest, resting in the Lord, but but there is no promise that the danger of this world is going to let up. They don't take a vacation. Television in Hollywood doesn't take a vacation. Pagan teachers don't take a vacation from influencing our kids. We're in danger. We face the same danger each and every day. If we're not advancing our faith, we'll fall away. Some of us need that Hobby Lobby sign in our house. And listen, the danger doesn't just appear when a big life decision appears. The danger happened this morning when you decided to begin your day without going to the Lord first. That's where danger began. The danger appeared this morning when you let that wrong belief into your brain and have a seat at the dinner table of your soul. That danger will appear tomorrow when you decide that the task that you are doing is not important to the Lord. There is real danger, and that's where we left off last week. Now the author changes his tone. There's a tone change. Last week, I said that his warning was prospective, okay, meaning that it hasn't happened yet, that this idea of falling away, that no one has fallen away yet. It hasn't happened, but it could happen in the future. He's saying these warnings, be aware. It's life or death. And then now he says, let me give you an assessment of your current status. So to his listeners, let me give you my assessment of your current status. He says emphatically, concerning you all, I feel secure of better things, things that concern salvation. So notice the juxtaposition. Here's the warning. Here's the danger. But let me tell you guys, here's what I think about you right now. I feel better about you guys concerning salvation or the things that concern salvation. In other words, he's saying, I believe that there are many among you that are walking well, that you're not dull of hearing. And I don't believe any of you have fallen away. Now, before we move forward, I think this caveat's important. We need a quick lesson on generalizations. 
generalizations are just that. They're statements that are generally true. You can't take this passage and say that every Hebrew reading is nailing it. Remember, he just got done talking about some of them not just being young, new believers, but still immature because they're lazy. I don't think he feels good about that, right? So this is a general statement. And so the same is true and always a danger in this context every single week. That I would make some sort of general statement and everyone would take that to the bank to make a deposit. And for some of you, if you try to deposit that check, it's going to bounce. That's why your DNA and doxa groups and other relationships are crucial. You should take these generalized statements of, uh, that's being said of you and ask your brother or sisters, are these things true of me? Is this true? Ask the Spirit. Ask your faithful Christians around you that are willing to hurt your feelings. Are these true of me? So don't take a generality and apply it specifically. This doesn't mean that the Hebrew listeners were all felt good about. The same thing is true for us. So here we go. The author's confidence. So he has a confidence. And his confidence is, y'all are doing pretty good. I'm encouraged, and so let me encourage you. That's the general statement. Now he has two reasons for why he's encouraged. I'm going to give you those two reasons. Those will be point number one and point number two. First is your faithfulness. He's encouraged because of their faithfulness or your faithfulness, to put it in application to us. And two, God's faithfulness. So if you're taking notes, those are the two main points. That's where we're headed first. First is your faithfulness. I see works that accompany salvation. I see works that accompany salvation. Let's read verses 9 through 10. So though we speak in this way, right? So that's all the warnings about falling away. So though we speak in this way, yet in your case, generally, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. All right, so let's set the context, okay? Step back with me. Even though we said these hard things, here's what I think about your current state. So in the context of the danger of apostasy, we feel better about your current state. Why? First, I see your works. I see your works. Now hang on a second. You say, what? I thought the more right thing would be for him to say, you know what, I feel better about your state because I see Jesus in you. Or I see Jesus' works in you. I mean, the author here doesn't sound very gospel-centered. And maybe even a bit legalistic. I think many of us disregard the idea of works. I think we have a misunderstanding of works. Some of us disregard our works because we oftentimes look to them to save us and we keep coming up short. 
So it's convenient for you to say, let's not talk about works. Like, I'm not saved through those things. Some of us disregard works because we're so afraid of legalism. What's funny is you're just finding your salvation in works once again by avoiding the works of righteousness. So you've made avoiding works of righteousness your work by which you feel saved. You've just exchanged this work for a different work, but you call it grace and anti-legalism. You've just made your work to make sure I avoid claiming my works. Chew on that a little bit. Some of you disregard your works because you think they're filthy rags. Some of you disregard works because you think they're all filthy rags. So let's spend a few moments understanding works or trying to help us build a theology of works. Because he says in this, in, in this situation, we feel secure of better things. What are the things? It's their works. If you, if you want to know how I got to, it's their works. Go to verse 10, just a few words later. For God is not unjust to us to overlook your work, right? Your works. We feel better, we feel sure about better things. These things are your work. So let's understand works a little bit better. Now these works are not the cause of salvation, but an accompaniment to salvation. Where there is salvation, these characteristics will inevitably be found. You see, we have not a works righteousness, but a righteousness that works. We have not a works righteousness, but a righteousness that works. Again, their work. Let's understand a little bit, step back in the context a little bit more. He's hearkening back to the field thing we talked about last week. That the field, the one that produces fruit or crops versus the one that produces thistles. And what he's saying, you're in the category or the camp that's producing a good crop. He sees real profitable fruit in their lives, a real profitable harvest in their lives. He sees a garden that has something worth picking. And don't forget in the context here, this garden that has something worth picking receives a blessing from God. So it asks you, does your garden have something worth picking? So their work, the emphasis we're seeing is their work. Now, to remind you of a few other passages here in application, faith that does not have good works is dead. James 2, 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You know what that means? You know what that means? That means that you're, if you don't have righteous works, then you're not a Christian. Don't know how else to make it more plain. I think James is pretty plain. A life absent of robust, faithful works unto the glory of God is a life absent of genuine, redeeming faith. Period. I don't think I made that more clear. I just added more words to it. But Next, works done to prove your righteousness apart from Jesus is filthy. 
works done apart or to prove your righteousness apart from Jesus is filthy. Isaiah 64, verse 6. This is, we like to quote this a lot in the legalistic conversation. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Literally, the passage is referring to minstrel rags. But listen, we take this passage and we don't read the verse right before it. So let's read the verse right before it. Because here's the deal. It's not all works that are filthy rags. Look at verse 5. You meet him who joyful, meaning God meets him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. You see, right before it, there is, this, there is the person who is working righteousness rightfully such that God is blessed and enjoy, enjoys it. it. It is a good thing. But then there are works that are unclean, that, that are like a polluted garment. You see, there's a blessed connection between God and the one who joyfully works righteousness. So it's not all works are filthy rags. It's works apart from Christ or works done to prove our righteousness apart from Jesus are filthy rags. Instead, works done remembering God and his promises accompany real genuine faith. I'll say that again. Instead, works done remembering God or by faith in God and his promises accompany real, genuine faith. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created us for good works, and he also lined up all the good works, that we should walk in them. We walk in them, how? By faith. By faith in who God is and what he has said concerning you, concerning himself, concerning the world, concerning those works. Part of walking, this is just a sliver, but if I'm going to walk in faith, that if I'm doing something that's righteous, I should believe that this is a work that he has given for me to do. And that's doing that work by faith. I believe this is a work that he's prepared beforehand for me to do. This is a promise. There are good works for us to do that God has prepared. And the promised decree is that we should walk in them. Because of his righteousness in me, let me walk in righteous works. I don't know if we understand this, but, or if, if this has sunk deep into your soul yet, but this is one of the greatest privileges that you and I have as Christians that God has lined up a set of works for you and I to walk in. And then he's redeemed you out of the pit to go do these glorious things that he's prepared for you. That he has thoughtfully planned for you as his child to do these things. He doesn't just have works in general that he has planned. But he has works for each and every single one of his children. That he has lined up beforehand and redeemed you out of the pit to go carry those things out. 
from changing diapers to slaying pagan priests in Hollywood. We have not a works righteousness, but a righteousness that works. Continue this thought of understanding works. Works are more than just the inner man. Although it's crucial, it's just two sides of the same coin. Works are more than just the inner man. The two parts, or one side of each of these, uh, one, uh, one side of the same coin, is the idea of bearing fruit and character, the inner man. That's a serious matter. Go read Galatians 5, and all we do, there should be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on. Love for his name. Like doing this out of love for his name. We work out of love for his name. But bearing fruit with your hands is a serious matter too. And indeed, I think in this passage, the more tangible and physical works is what he has in mind. So I, 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 and we live in a culture right now that has put such an overemphasis on the inner man and taken away the glory of the practical works, the physical works. And in this passage, I think it's the physical works that he has more in mind here than the other. You say, why? Because if you go later to Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 34, speaking of the same people, he says, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, right, we just read about those who have been enlightened, After you've been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who have physically helped another people. They did physical good works. We've got to leave behind, the fancy word is this Gnosticism, where the physical things don't matter. Your physical work really and truly does matter. Everything done in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God matters. From disciplining your kids to keeping your wife warm, submitting to and respecting your husband, mucking out a chicken coop, writing computer code, making a delicious meal, Providing a pleasant home for your husband and kids. These works matter. They have purpose. Listen, when you're putting together that grocery list, do you believe that it has purpose and that it matters for the glory of God? When you're changing that diaper or disciplining that kid, You see, this good crop points to real and saving faith. That's what he's saying. I see the crop in your field, and it's worth picking instead of being plowed under. You see, where someone said, where there is fruit, there should be life. Listen, some of our lives, though, are so lifeless or dull or pathetic because we don't have a good theology of works. But your work matters. Yes, they are part of your salvation. 
but they're part of the, the, you have to put them in the right part of your salvation. Not the earning of your salvation, but the walking in your salvation. Again, it's those works he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's the part of salvation they fit. And everything we do and say and think is a part of those works. And and, and again, hearkening back to last week's passage, these thorns and thistles don't receive this blessing of God But the field that has the right crop that's growing with good works, God blesses. And so your life would not be so lifeless or dull or pathetic if you viewed your works the way God views your works. So again, why does he have confidence concerning their salvation? Because of their faithfulness in works. Second, because of God's faithfulness. So he's not just confidence because of their good works, but he's confidence because of God's faithfulness, because God cares about your works. I, I, I don't know that we would say this verbally, but I think this is the way we subconsciously act. Well, when Jesus, or when God sees me, he sees Jesus, and he sees Jesus' works that are accredited to my account. Therefore, and this is the thing I think we do subconsciously, is my works really don't matter for anything. We just kind of chuck them to the side. Those fit into this equation. But again, they don't fit in this equation on the earning side of the equation. They fit into the working it out side. Not in a earning to keep it, but a walking in light of. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, we for sure better things, things that belong to salvation. Look at this. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Do you see that? This, this, this next point could really be a sub-point of understanding your works, but I, I broke it up a little bit differently. But we live in a culture of grace, 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 and, and that's my ace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a lazy Christian like me. There's a, a quote for, a hymn quote for Jeff. Man, we have gone so far away from a rich Christian life full of incredible works done unto the Lord. And it's funny to me that those who scream legalism the loudest are usually the laziest. Now, if you think I'm being mean, look at the passage. He's juxtaposing two people here. The doll of, la- the doll of hearing slash lazy and sluggish Versus those doing great work. He's the one making the juxtaposition. That's not just a snarky comment by me, although I wouldn't mind saying it. He's juxtaposing these two people. The dull of hearing, the immature, the lazy, versus those who are working hard. Those who are doing good works. Those we feel good about. 
And then next he's going to say to be diligent. Don't be these guys, be this guy. We should put an exclamation point on this phrase if you're taking notes. Your works matter. Exclamation point. Listen, and hear me. They don't matter just because they practically make a difference. Although they do. But your works matter because when right works are done rightly, it's an expression of God's justice. Works matter because when right works are done rightly, it's an expression of God's justice. It's an expression even more broadly of his character. See, here's, here's what, he, what the author is saying. Is God would be unjust if he overlooked your work. What? Let me put it in, in, in other words. He would cease to be fit to be God if he overlooked the work of his children. What? I thought he just looked at me and saw Jesus' work. I, I, and I can just go to the priest and ten Hail Marys later and I'm good. My works don't matter. God cares about your work. Again, we live in a Christian culture where there is this disconnect between our work and God caring about our work. Somewhere down the line, it became something like one of the following. We're all just useless sinners. Good thing I got Jesus because my work doesn't matter. Or two, all my works are filthy rags, so none of it matters. Or three, all that matters is that I feel good about Jesus. As long as I got that box checked, we're fine. Or the only work that matters is my quiet time or going to church. But all of our work matters. God treasures more than just your quiet time. Yes, it does involve your quiet time. Yes, that is crucial. Yes, you need it. I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying there are other things important as well. God treasures every deed of love, every act of fidelity, every acre taken, every beautiful meal served, every toilet cleaned or diaper changed. Think about this. God forgets every sin you've done. But according to this passage, he remembers every good deed you do. How's that for grace? How's that? That he would not count your evil deeds against you, but that he would justly look upon the good works that you do. Huh. I mean, we don't live that way, right? I'm going to remember every evil thing you do, and I'm going to remember every good thing you do, right? And hopefully at the end of the day, if the good outweighs the bad, then I'm going to like you more, right? That's how we, how we define our relationships. God doesn't do that. What grace this is. You see, the author is saying, I feel confident about your salvation because you have a righteousness that works. We work, why? Because he first loved us that he would give us Christ's righteousness. Take upon 
taking upon himself our sin. And then we walk in all of that righteousness that he planned for us to walk in. That he saved us unto and planned for us to walk in. And the author here is saying, I feel confident because you have a righteousness that works. I see the crop growing in your fields. And I am sure because the justice of God will see the crop in that field as well. That he would be unjust to overlook this. Wow. So let let me take a moment and to say to you, church, I see the crop growing in your fields. I see the work of homemaking by many of you women in a new and fresh way. I see the work of leading your homes by many of you men in new, powerful, conquering, God-honoring ways. I see the work of taking the next acre in your vocations and education. See the work of obedience to your parents, dear children. See the work of repentance and faith. Be encouraged. And be encouraged because I am sure, because of the justice of God, He will not overlook the crops in your field. Praise God. Praise God. So the author here says, of you, we feel better concerning these things related to salvation. And then in verse 11, he says that I have a desire for you. You hear now a shepherd's desire. So I feel good about these things concerning you. Now let me show you my desire. So it, it's, it's really, I, I love this kind of moment here because what you have is like, hey guys, some of you are dull and lazy, right? You got that. If you don't advance and you keep being dull and lazy, which is the warning for all of us, you're going to fall away. Now, for most of you, I feel good about the works that are in your, uh, in your field. The crop, it's good. It's, it's ready to be harvested or it will be in due time. And most of us are like, all right, cool, good speech. But now he moves on to more for us to do. Right? He started there, and most of us are like, no, hang on, just end on the positive encouragement note, right? The K-Love one. But he goes on, you have more to do. More to do. Look at this, verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, I think... Just as a quick side note here, I think for many of us, this assurance, uh, full assurance of hope, we think is just something that is kind of mystically thrown upon us. But here, it doesn't work that way. There's actually effort and earnestness to get there that is part of our efforts by grace of God, of course. So here's what happens. Here's what his, his chief desire here. He desires that they all persevere to the end with the fullness of hope. Literally meaning that, that, their, that their hope would be overflowing, that it would be filled to the top. How many of us live each, lie, each day with our hope filled to the top? 
How many? Anybody? Can anybody raise your hand? I can't. I'll put my hand down. Now, let me give you some definitions. We're going to have to talk about three definitions here, but I'm going to talk about them as I work through. But the, defin- the words we're going to have to define to get what he's saying here is hope, faith, and patience. Hope, faith, and patience. Again, I'm not going to define them all right away. I'll define them as we go. First, hope. So he's wanting us to have the full assurance of hope until the end. It, again, it literally means our, our hope filled to the top. Hope is not some positive emotional experience or outlook. Have you ever heard someone say, are you hopeful today? Meaning, do you feel good right now? That's stupid. Hope has to have an object. I am hopeful in. You can't just be hopeful. There's a reason for the hopefulness and something that the hope is aimed toward. You see, hope is a confidence concerning the future. So it's, I'm hopeful that A will happen or B will happen or C will not happen. Hope is a confidence. And the more full your hope is, the more confident you are that that's going to happen Listen, that's where anxiety comes from. It's a confidence in something happening or not happening that you deem unfavorable. But Christian hope is birthed from faith in God concerning the future. Who he is and what he has promised to do. So that's, that's hope looking forward Concerning what God, who God is and what he's promised to do. See, hope values the things promised. Right? That's, a, I think, a helpful phrase. Or hope looks forward to the day of their realization. Or their, it coming to fruition. So I have hope that this will one day, this promise will happen. That it will come true. Hope is confidence concerning the future. And if you have hope in God, side note here, that hope in God gives birth to fresh effort and endeavor, right? Because if you believe that the, that the promise for which you are working toward is for sure going to happen, then you're going to work with a freshness to your efforts and your endeavor. But if you begin to doubt whether or not that promise will actually happen, or you've come up with a stupid promise that God didn't give you in the scriptures, then you're not going to walk with hopefulness, or at least the measure of hope that would be overflowing or filled to the brim. To quote someone, hope views the promised land, and this gives eagerness to the weary pilgrim to continue pressing forward. Think Pilgrim's Progress here. It was the hope of the celestial city and all that, it was, all that was promised there that kept him moving. Hope is always future-oriented. So listen, I, I don't want to rock too many of your worlds here, but you can't have hope in the cross or the resurrection of Jesus. Those are past events. 
But you can have hope in the future grace that is paid for by those past events. You have faith, and we'll get there in a moment, in those events of the cross and the resurrection. And those events paid for things in the future, secured the promises guaranteed to us, and those we have hope in. Hope is always future-oriented. To use a phrase John Piper said, hope is the future tense of faith. Hope is the future tense of faith. So all hope involves faith, but not all faith involves hope. Next, so not just hope, but he says to be diligent in faith. I'm going to define faith in just a moment. But he says be diligent in faith. What I want to go after first here is the idea of you should leave behind the sluggishness. So before I define faith, I want to warn you, as he does, to avoid sluggishness when it comes to faith, or to put it positively, be diligent in faith. Now let me give you some marks of a sluggard in the faith. Because that's what he's telling us not to. Don't do this, he's saying. So that you may not be sluggish. Here's some marks of the sluggard in the faith. Proverbs 10, 26. You can, uh, I'll read it for you, but I'd encourage you to look at these later. Proverbs 10, 26. I'll read the verse in a second. But your walk of faith is sour to the faithful Christians around you. A sluggard in the faith will have a faith that is sour to the faithful Christians around them. Look at Proverbs 10, 26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Proverbs 13, 4. Your walk of faith gets you nothing. That's the, again, a mark of a sluggard in the faith. The soul, quoting 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Remember, the author here is telling them, don't be sluggish in your faith. So all we're doing is we're stepping back, and we're going back to Proverbs, Go well, then what is the sluggard? And how does that apply to faith? Proverbs 23, or sorry, 22, verse 13. The sluggard in the faith always has seemingly good excuses. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. <laughs> He's being sarcastic if you want to go back and read the context there. Always has seemingly good excuses. The sluggard in the faith. Next, Proverbs 19, verse 24. The sluggard in the faith lacks follow-through. He lacks follow-through. What does it mean? He lacks discipline, self-discipline, effort, self-control. It says here, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. You understand the metaphor there? It means he's got all this food right before him. 
And he puts his hand, and he's, he's starving. He's going to die if he doesn't eat. So he puts his hand into the bowl, into the plates of food. But he doesn't follow through with actually bringing it back to his mouth and eating it. Can you put that in the context of Hebrews chapter 6? Meat eaters, milk drinkers. That you would be served a dish of meat. Put your hands in it by physically being here, but never actually taking it back and putting it in your mouth. He's saying don't be a sluggard. And the faith is said be diligent. Embrace diligence. Earnestness. What does he mean by earnestness? A sincere and intense conviction. Self-discipline. Embrace diligence. It would be the opposite of the sluggard. So to be diligent in faith, what is he, what's the picture he gives us? I think this is a, a beautifully helpful picture. He is, he is saying, I want you to have hope that is filled to the top as you persevere all the way to the end. How do we get there? That's there at the end of this phrase. Don't be sluggish. Instead, be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. So these are the people who make it all the way through. And he's saying, be imitators of them, of those who have faith and patience. Through faith and patience. Keep those words in your head. First, though, imitation. What a gift it is to see things modeled for us. We don't have to make up every step along the way. Another misconception, I think, that this passage addresses is that your faith isn't just your faith in the way the world wants you to believe that it's your faith. Well, it's my faith, and no one's, no one's life is like my life, and therefore my faith is my faith, and no one else understands my faith, and I'm alone in my faith, and so therefore no one can speak to my faith. Listen, your faith isn't that unique. He tells us to imitate the faith and patience of certain others. Now in this passage, I don't don't have time this morning to go here. We'll get here as we go through Hebrews. He's going to give us lots of examples from Abraham to Moses and so on. And that, that is certainly at the forefront of his mind of who we're to imitate. He tells us to imitate their faith and patience. So next, faith. What's faith in this context? Again, I think we tend to think of faith as some mystical thing that happens to us that we just kind of passively sit by and wait for. Something elusive, something we're always chasing but never finding. If you feel like you're always chasing and never finding faith, it's probably because you're chasing your girlfriend or boyfriend named emotion and not actual faith. Faith, let me put it in this this phrase. I hope you write this down. Faith is choosing to trust. It is a willful choice that I believe God has given us the power to do once he has given you new birth. Let me put it another way. Faith is making a covenant to trust, a commitment 
to trust. It is saying, I'm going to trust you. And then it's every time doubt comes into your mind, you say, no, why? Because I feel like trusting you. Right now, my, my emotions feel good about trusting you. No, because I made a commitment. That's why. And you tell that doubt to get out. I almost said a cuss word there. <laughs> you tell it to go to hell. How about that? There we go. Now I won't get in trouble for that. Faith is choosing to trust. It's making a commitment to walk in belief. It's literally saying, Jesus, I trust you. You are a reliable person. You are trustworthy. You are dependable. You are constant and consistent. You are responsible. I would also caution you away from the language of claiming the promises of Jesus or having faith in the promises of Jesus. Instead, we have faith in the one who made the promises. Now I know we tend to, are, are implying that when we say that phrase, but how easy for it, or would it be for us in three months to forget that we are faith, we have faith in the one who made the promises in exchange for just the promises themselves? Or how easy would it be for that, the idea of having faith in the promises to get lost in translation to our children and they miss that it's the person in whom I have faith that has guaranteed the promises. Remember, it's danger, right? Everything's working against us. So for God and his faithfulness and his plan is not. Faith is making a commitment to trust Instead, it's I trust the one who made them. He's reliable in keeping them. He is dependable to follow through. He is constant in his plans. He is responsible to finish. He will see it through. To get real practical here, it is picking your mind up out of trusting something else, repenting for it, and committing to trust Christ. No, I will trust the Lord covenant. Why? Because I made a covenant. He has made one with me. I will trust Christ. To put it another way, this idea of faith, he's telling us to have diligence in maintaining a present living upon Christ. What do I mean by that? A, a, a continual growing and knowing him and loving him and obeying him. Diligence in maintaining a present moment living upon Christ. One last thing. We don't just imitate faith. He tells us to imitate patience. I don't know if that strikes you as fascinating, but it strikes me as fascinating. Faith, big, glorious, powerful word, right? Hope, big, powerful, glorious word. And don't forget patience. Huh. Patience. I think, first of all, we live in a, a give it to me now kind of mindset. 
But do you, do you know what patience means? I'm going to put patience the, in, in my own words here. It means you can't have what you want right now and being okay with it. Patience is not having what you want right now and being okay with it. You're good. I'm content is what I mean by okay. Content with that. Let me give you an application here just to the side. When you have young kids, you have to teach them patience and you have to teach it to them quickly. Right? Amen? Amen. All right, all the parents say amen. But listen, teaching them patience is not just about you teaching them patience so that you have a more peaceful home. If they don't learn patience, they will never learn hope. If they don't learn, why? Because hope is in future confidence. So if they don't learn patience, to wait on the realization of that which they hope for, then they will never get there. They will never learn hope, which means what? They'll never get the gospel. So listen, when you're teaching your five-year-old to be patient, don't have such a limited view of what's going on in that moment. You're giving them the, the building blocks to hope in the future promises of God. You're teaching them how to wait, how to be patient, how to wait on God to bring those to fruition. Parents, you adults, you have to learn patience. That's why some of you have no hope. It's because you have no patience. Just like queen, you want it all and you want it now. And if you keep that up, just like Freddie Mercury, you will indeed get it all when you get to hell. That's the danger. Listen, the key to patience is contentment, and the key to contentment is faith. I'm content with what I have. How can I be content with what I have? Because I have faith. It's trust that all I have and all I don't have right now is by God's good sovereign decree, and I trust him. And I'm good with it. I'm good with it. And so he says, imitate these people. They inherited the promises. How? Through faith and patience. How do they persevere to the end? Through faith and patience. Well, again, what is faith and patience? So now I'm just trying to pull the string and, and kind of wrap and give you some bottom line here. What is faith and patience? When you put faith and patience together, we get hope. Here's why. Let me show you. Hope is always future confidence. It's always the thing in the future I believe will happen. It's future oriented. It's the thing you want but can't have right now. Faith, that's hope. Faith, though, is personal trust. It's the confidence in the person, in Christ who made the promises about those future things. 
So again, hope is faith in the future tense. So there is no hope unless you have faith. You can't have hope in future promises if you don't have faith in the person making those promises. In that sense, faith is the ground or the basis of hope. And then he says that third word, patience. Why would you need patience? Because hope is about future things not yet happened. So why would you need patience? Look at it. Hope is faith in a person who has promised something in the future that you have to what? Patiently wait for. That you have to be okay with it not there yet. So let me end with this. If you are diligent, moment by moment, to make a covenant to trust Jesus, I mean, every time those, the unbelief, wrong belief, doubt enters into your head, you say, no, I've made a commitment to faith in Christ. And you patiently wait for him to keep that promise, your hope will be full. Your hope will be full. Your hope will be abundant. And you will have the full assurance of hope till the end. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work these things in us. That we would have a full assurance of hope to the end. But that you would give us faith Meaning that you would help enable us by your grace to say, no, I choose Christ. I made a covenant with him. I have faith in him. I trust him. Father, that you'd give us patience. That we would patiently wait as he carries out and fulfills all that he has promised to do. All of the things that were paid for, that we believe by faith at the cross and the resurrection of that same person, Jesus our Lord. I pray that Christ the Lord as a church would be a church full of hope. That is overflowing, that is filled to the top. Why? Because of our faith in Jesus and our patiently waiting on him to do as he has said he will do. Father, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.